Welcome to On the Ballot with Ballotpedia, where we take a closer look at the week's top political stories. Ballotpedia connects people to politics by providing neutral, nonpartisan, and reliable information on our government, how it works, and where it's headed. We're here to give you the facts so you can form your own opinion. I'm Victoria Rose. Thanks for being with us. Today, we're going to discuss the competitiveness of state legislative elections around the country and the availability of voter files with our very own Doug Krenizel, who's here with me now. Hello, Victoria. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming back on. Yeah, yeah. Just got just got back from a wedding yesterday. It was a very pleasant weekend. I'm sure it was. So, Doug, we're less than 60 days away from the midterm elections. There are 6,278 state legislative seats up for election on November 8th in 46 states. There's always a lot of chatter about midterms swinging one way or another, and now feels like as good a time as any to start thinking about how competitive some of these races might be. To start, what makes a state legislative race competitive? Competitiveness is one of those words it seems like everybody can have a different definition for. Uh, We tend to tie competitiveness to choices. Do voters have a choice at the polls? Then there is more competition. Are more races uncontested? Then there is less competition. We actually put out a big report every year detailing all of the different data points we use to determine competitiveness. And it covers the entire election cycle from filing deadlines to primaries to general elections. That report's not ready yet, but I am sure we will talk about it soon. But today, I've got some numbers on one piece of that report that listeners will probably find most interesting when it comes to general elections, and that's major party competition. Got it. So like when the general election comes around, will voters get to choose between a Democrat and a Republican, or is there just a Democrat or just a Republican on the ballot? Exactly. If you've got candidates from both major parties running, voters have a choice to make. But if only a Democrat or only Republican is on the ballot, then there's less of a choice. And whoever's running is pretty much guaranteed to win. I shouldn't say they are 100% we're going to say they're guaranteed to win throughout this uh, this talk we're about to have. And that's just because I think something like 99.6% of all state legislators are of one of the two major parties. 0.4% are independents or, or minor party candidates. Um, so there is always a chance that one of those candidates might win if they're on the ballot. But from what we tend to see in, in our coverage, it's usually one of the two major parties who ends up winning these seats. Got it. So another trend that we want to talk about is uncontested seats. So what portion of the state legislative seats up for election this year are uncontested? Of the 6,000 plus seats up for election, a little under half of them, 42%, are uncontested and have no major party competition. That means that over 2,600 officials are effectively guaranteed to win come November. Then that gives us about 58% or 3,600 seats where voters will choose between the two parties this fall. When I was researching before you came on the show, I saw that this was a higher rate of uncontested seats compared to the 2018 and 2020 election cycles. In 2020, we saw 35% uncontested seats, but it was lower than the cycles in 2014 and 2016. So how does the portion of uncontested seats break down by party? Democrats are guaranteed to win 1,063 seats. That's 17% of those up for election. And those are all seats where there are no Republicans running. And Republicans are guaranteed to win 1,588 seats, around 25% that lack Democratic competition. I should also note that there are four seats guaranteed to independents because no major party candidates are running. But As far as the major parties go, this is the smallest percentage of seats guaranteed to Democrats in five election cycles and the largest guaranteed to Republicans. 
That contrast really sticks out to me that this year, Democrats have their smallest percentage of guaranteed wins and Republicans have their largest. What should we make of that? Well, a low number of guaranteed wins for Democrats means Republicans are running for seats they don't typically run for and contesting Democrats at an increased rate this year. And then the high number of guaranteed wins for Republicans means there are seats out there that Democrats have contested in the past, but this year, Republicans are heading to the general election without any major party opponents. At the most basic level, it seems to suggest an increased level of activity for Republican candidates. We're just seeing more of them pulling out the filing forms and getting on the ballot. And what are some of the consequences of so many uncontested elections and guaranteed seats? I'm wondering how that affects state legislative majorities across the country. Less contested races, or fewer contested races, uh, translates into increased odds that one party or the other will be able to gain or retain a majority in a state. Based on the number of uncontested seats, we already know which party will control one quarter of the chambers holding elections this year. One of the two major parties is guaranteed a simple majority, so that's over 50% of seats in the chamber, in 23 chambers across 16 states. Democrats are guaranteed simple majorities in three chambers, and Republicans are guaranteed simple majorities in 20. That's another pretty noteworthy difference. Will either party have a shot at a supermajority, making the legislature veto-proof? And as a quick reminder for our listeners, veto-proof majorities represent the number of seats needed to override a governor's veto. And they typically require more seats than a simple majority, often two-thirds or more, but the exact number varies by state. Republicans are guaranteed a veto-proof majority in 13 chambers across nine states. Granted, most of those are in states where a simple majority is a supermajority. Democrats are not guaranteed veto-proof majorities in any chambers. That's another interesting party breakdown. Does redistricting have anything to do with how these numbers have changed since 2020? Redistricting might be playing a role. Uh, Districts that previously favored one party might have been made into more of a battleground this year, which could get people to run in places they might not have in the past, or vice versa. It might have taken a district that was once pretty neck and neck and made it into more of a safe bet for one party, leading candidates from the other parties to say, you know what, I'm probably just going to pass. Yeah, redistricting always seems to play a factor. Before we move on, you were just mentioning things like neck and neck districts and safe bets for one party or another. Do we have breakdowns like that for every state legislative district? Oh, how I wish we did. But unfortunately, with the thousands out there, we just don't have the race ratings like we do for the U.S. House. You know, things like solid Democrat or lean Republican. But when it comes to major party competition, the seats that tend to go uncontested are the ones where one party really holds an advantage. Maybe there's a popular incumbent running, or maybe the district is made up of mostly Democratic or Republican voters. But I used to follow state legislative elections in my home state, and one thing you'd always hear people say is, you've got to run to have a chance to win. So when one party contests a seat, it usually doesn't. That could be a bit of an uphill battle for one of those reasons, but it could have an effect down the line. Somebody runs, they get volunteers, they get donor lists, maybe they don't win, but they get their name out there and might be back next cycle to see if they don't do a little better. Yeah, I think that's why it's important to track these competitiveness figures on a large scale over time. Switching gears here, let's discuss the availability of voter files across the country. If you're listening to the show, chances are you're already a voter or are thinking about voting for the first time this year. Wherever it is that you live and vote, you may or may not know that your state creates and maintains a file containing information all about you that they can sell to individuals or groups. 
Is this something we've always done as a country, Doug? No, it's actually new to this millennium. After the 2000 presidential election and the Bush v. Gore Supreme Court decision, Congress passed the Help America Vote Act, or HAVA, HAVA, I don't know how to pronounce acronyms of of this nature. Uh, Back in 2002, the HAVA legislation created the U.S. Election Assistance Commission. The legislation directed every state to create a uniform, computerized, statewide voter registration list that contains the name and registration information of every legally registered voter in the state. And what other sort of information do states collect to put in someone's voter file? Voter files typically contain voters' names, addresses, a record of the elections they have participated in. They may also contain the voters' age, phone numbers, email addresses, party affiliations, previous political donations, and other other data along those lines, depending on the state. The U.S. Election Assistance Commission classifies the availability of each state's voter file information as either open mixed or restricted based on the type of individuals or groups that are allowed to purchase the voter file. Got it. But they don't contain our voting records, right? Some states do require voter files to contain which party a voter might have registered with or the last time that they voted or the frequency in which they voted, but they do not indicate the candidates you voted for or you know the political party you chose on, on the ballot. Uh, that information is not publicly available. That's good to hear. Who out there might want to get their hands on this sort of information, though? They can be helpful resources for political parties, campaigns, pollsters, researchers, and journalists. For example, campaigns might purchase the files to see how often different voters vote. Especially in midterm elections, which have lower turnout, campaigns would like to know which voters tend to vote in midterms so they can target those voters directly instead of wasting money sending you know, glossy mailers to voters who tend to only vote in presidential election years. I know that in South Dakota, where I live, if you vote early, campaigns will also see that you've already voted and they tend to stop sending you mailers or calling you at that point because why would they? They know you've already voted. That might be an incentive, I guess, to vote early so you stop getting all that advertisements. It really is. Um, Yeah. Can you give us a broad strokes overview of voter file availability in terms of how many states offer each type of access? 31 states have open availability, meaning there are effectively no restrictions on purchases. Uh, 16 states have mixed availability, meaning certain types of individuals or groups can purchase the information that is unavailable to others. And then Four states have restricted availability, meaning only certain types of individuals or groups can purchase that voter file. And the majority of states have rules in place to prohibit the commercial use of voter file information. But once a state's voter file is purchased, it's difficult to regulate how the data is being reused, redistributed, or consolidated with other data sources. What states have restricted availability? That would be Illinois, Maryland, Minnesota, and South Dakota. I should note, though, that accessing these files all cost different amounts of money. Like in Maryland, they cost $125, but in North Dakota, they cost over $2,000 and contain different sorts of information, too. The range of prices is pretty remarkable, from $0 in 11 states to as high as $37,000 in Alabama. I'd imagine those high prices have to do with the states trying to discourage the purchasing of voter files. Is that right, Doug? Or is it something else? It's tough to tell. You know, Part of it could be that election officials know it's mostly organizations or campaigns interested in this info, and the payment might help offset the costs for maintaining those voter files, depending on how the state appropriates funds to um, cover, cover those costs. But it could also be to dissuade the purchase, especially when the files contain more detailed information. Let's walk through a few examples of states so our listeners can get a 
taste of what sort of information they're getting for the price. Can you tell me what $37,000 can get me in Alabama? Yeah. If you got 37 k burning a hole in your pocket, you can get Alabama's voter list. They have open availability, meaning anybody can purchase the data there and you gain access to all the information about a voter except for their social security number and date of birth. We'll just move down the list of states alphabetically. How about Alaska? Sure. Well, a little bit cheaper, 20 bucks in Alaska. It's an open state. Uh, They're fairly selective with what they'll include, though. Uh, They only give you access to the voter's name, address, and political party affiliation. You can't purchase, you know, things like a date of birth, social security number, driver's license number, uh, place of birth, or their signature. Seems reasonable. It's interesting that two states with open access differ so widely, though, on what exactly they're granting access to. How about a state that grants mixed access like Arizona? 516 bucks in Arizona will get you a bit more than in Alaska, but not as much as Alabama. Arizona offers access to voters' names, address, phone number, birth year, political party affiliation, registration date, their occupation, and their voting history. But you can't get you know those things that we've already mentioned, like in Alaska, like social security number. I don't think there's a single voter file that you can drop money and get someone's social security number for. Unfortunately, if there were people out there who were who were uh, you know really really eager to go out there and get a big list of social security numbers from Tennessee or something like that. I think they call those people frauds. <laughs> Do states issue like who is buying these files? Mm, I'm not quite sure on on that front. If if it's like a public record, if if you can see the people who have come in and and asked to access these, I'd be surprised if there aren't at least like a few states that even if they don't make it publicly available, have like some log that you can you know request access to. Because like the goal, the goal of these files and the goal of the Help America Vote Act was to just kind of like centralize and standardize all of this information. Because before 2000, it was far more kind of dispersed and, and it would differ from state by state. And so this makes it much easier to have a little bit of uniformity when it comes to uh, you know how voters are registered and uh, accounted for in each state. Got it. That makes sense. Well, that's all the questions I have for you, Doug. If our listeners would like to take a look at the availability of voter files in your state or your state's legislative competitiveness for the midterms, feel free to check out the links in our show bio for more. And thanks again for coming on the show, Doug. We're looking forward to having you back. Thanks for having me. Hey, listeners, this is Jeff Paule, Ballopedia's editor-in-chief, back with you. Here at Ballopedia, our mission is to ensure that every citizen has access to information to make informed decisions about their vote in every election. If this is a dream you share, well, you're in luck. Ballopedia is hiring and looking to add to our team of fast learners and creative problem solvers who are eager to work hard to make the world a better place. To learn more about our current openings, you can find them at ballopedia.org jobs or via the link in our show notes. Thanks and hope to see you here at Ballopedia. Polly doesn't want a cracker, but he does want to bring you some new footnote facts. I, Paul Rader, am back once again with your prescribed weekly dose of trivia. And today we're going to sort of build off of last week and get into more historical partisan changes in Congress and state legislatures. This episode's trivia question, sponsored by yours truly, is what state legislative chamber has only ever been controlled by one party? Something for you to chew on for a bit. First up, historical partisan changes in Congress. In the never-ending battles between Republicans and Democrats for legislative majorities, control of the U.S. House and the U.S. Senate has changed hands many times over the years. So these stats only considered the 1856 election onward, as that was around the time the Republican Party was born and started claiming seats in Congress. 
So Democrats have controlled the U.S. House more times than Republicans, taking a majority, or in some cases a plurality, in 45 congressional terms while Republicans claim the lead in 38 of them. But in the U.S. Senate, that script is basically flipped. Republicans controlled the U.S. Senate in 43 congressional terms, while Democrats did so 37 times. And those numbers include times where a vice president had to be a tiebreaker because the U.S. Senate was otherwise split evenly. And the 83rd and 107th congressional terms were a bit weird as majority control flipped within those terms between both Republicans and Democrats. The longest streak of Republican control was eight congressional terms on three different occasions in the U.S. House and nine congressional terms for the U.S. Senate. For Democrats, the longest streak was the 86th to 103rd Congresses in the U.S. House and the 84th to 96th Congresses in the U.S. Senate. Now, when you get to state legislatures, the number of partisan changes varies considerably depending on the state. Some states are highly resistant to party flips in their houses and or senates, while others go back and forth much more often. So how resistant are we talking? Well, the longest current streaks that Democrats have controlled a House or Senate are both in Maryland. Maryland's state house has been blue since 1919, barely after the end of World War I. Maryland's state Senate has been blue even longer, since 1899. Goodness, Mick Jagger was only a teenager then. Meanwhile, the longest current streaks that Republicans have controlled a state legislative chamber are the Idaho State Senate since 1960, that's 6-0, and the Kansas State House since 1916, 1-6. Not as long as those Democratic stretches in Maryland, but still plenty long. Now. Let's take a more wide-ranging look at state legislatures. Since 2000 onward, 31 states have seen their houses flip parties at least once, and 29 senates have done so. If we take just the past decade, just 13 state senates and 12 state houses have changed party control. Ah, but unfortunately, I don't have enough time for more facts, so let's go back to today's trivia question. What state legislative chamber has only ever been controlled by one party? That answer is Hawaii's State House, which has been Democrat-controlled since Hawaii's statehood in 1959. Its state Senate was almost the same way, but Republicans did have a majority from that year to 1962. So if you're correct, it's only fitting that you get 1,959 points, and good luck carrying them all. Uh, we're out of time. Got to wrap it up quickly. Go, Victoria. Thanks, Paul. Before we go, I wanted to highlight our weekly Economy and Society newsletter, which is a great resource for anyone interested in the growing intersection between business and politics. You can read all about the developments in corporate activism, corporate political engagement, and ESG trends, or environmental, social, and corporate governance. Here's a glimpse at our September 6th edition. Two weeks ago, several companies included on Texas's banned financial services list complained publicly that in their view, the state is playing politics with its ESG-related bans. Previously, BlackRock had pushed back against the new blacklist, insisting that Texas had misinterpreted both its intentions and practices. Texas Comptroller Glenn Hagar is implementing a 2021 law that requires state pension and school funds to divest shares they hold in listed financial groups, which in the government's view, quote, boycott energy companies. For more, go to Ballotpedia.org and find the email updates tab or use the link in our show notes to sign up for the Economy and Society newsletter or to check out our other newsletters. And that's all for this week's episode of On the Ballot. Thanks again to Doug and Paul for coming on the show. Make sure you subscribe so you don't miss an episode. We'll be back next week for a preview of early voting and stories from our help desk. Until then, if you have any questions, comments, or just some love for Ballotpedia, feel free to send it to us at ontheballot at ballotpedia.org or on Twitter at Ballotpedia. I'm Victoria Rose, and thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.